We can turn with in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Can you, our summer series in books on context series or um, verses taken out of context, uh, every week I find a new one. And every time I find a new one, I want to do that one that I figured most people misinterpret. And certainly John 3.16 uh, is one of those passages that I think is misinterpreted often. Uh, that implies that I have the right answer and the right interpretation, which I do. Um, so uh, certainly, you know, this series implies that throughout, that I have the right understanding of what's going on here. But hopefully you see what I mean when we go through. Hopefully you understand what I saw or what is said here uh, as we uh, unfold what God is doing in John 3, 16. So I know I made some promises, too, about various texts that we might do. I'm sorry, I cannot keep my promises because we have to start Colossians at some point. Sometime in the future, we'll do some more uh, verses taken out of context, but I really want to do John 3.16. So we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 this morning, but to set the context, we have to begin at verse 1. So John 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with you. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. You do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to, that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen. They've been done in God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to a blessed passage that really is too wonderful for us. It is too high for us, oh God. And so we ask, oh God, that our eyes would not be haughty, nor our hearts too lofty. We pray, oh God, that we not concern ourselves with such great and wonderful matters, oh God. But help us to make sure we don't say things we ought not concerning you. Help us to make sure we don't say things we ought not concerning the Son. Thank you, O God, for the blessed mystery of the Trinity, that we have one God in three persons. And thank you for the blessed mystery of the hypostatic union, one person in two natures. Thank you that our Christ is fully God and fully man, 
Thank you for the eternal relations that are found in the Trinity. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And thank you, O God, that we see the missions of the Son and the Spirit, which reveal your Trinity. And even these things, O God, are so high for us. But as we consider who you are, and as we consider what you've done in time and space, may you humble us, may you bring us low, may you recognize that these things really are too wonderful for us. And yet you are a God who is pleased to reveal yourself to us in your word, and especially in your son, the one who came into this world, the one who is lifted up, and those who look upon the son of man may have eternal life. Thank you, O God, for the gift of new birth. We're thankful also, O God, for the gift of faith. And we're thankful, O God, for the gift of the son who makes new birth and who makes faith even possible. Thank you, O God, you did not leave us in our transgressions, but you came down, O son, to save us from our sins without changing your divinity. We're thankful that you are fully, uh, fully human, like us in every way, yet without sin. So help us now, O God, as we come to your word. Help us now, O God, as we consider these blessed truths. We pray, O God, that you would give us illumination, that you would give us understanding by your spirit. And we pray, O God, that your saints would be strengthened. We pray, O God, that sinners would be saved. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, certainly John 3.16 is a most well-known passage. I'm sure everybody, and not just Christians, everybody knows it off by heart. But it's also a most misunderstood passage as well. And I think it's misunderstood in many different ways. Those who like to put the onus on man when it comes to salvation really cling to John 3.16. They say, look, Christ saves the world. Look, it says, whoever believes shall have everlasting life. And while I believe it is true, whoever believes shall have everlasting life, those arguments, those assertions by that one group fail to take into account the entire context, fail to see what happened prior to John 3.16. And most of the time, men like to put the primary power of salvation in our own hands. We like to say, God held it out for us and we grasped it. It was my power. It was what I did. But again, that fails to take into account the, the, uh, the context. We must have new birth that precedes faith. But I also think sometimes the other group, which we are, I'm talking about Arminians and Calvinists, the Calvinists sometimes in response to the Arminian, I think sometimes take John 3.16 too literal sometimes. I'm not afraid of the translation, whoever believes. We like to point out to the Armenian and say, look, it says all the believing ones will be saved. But I think whoever believes is a proper and right translation, because I think the way we sometimes argue it is a failure to understand the Greek. But also, I think it devoids verse 16 of its promise. Whoever believes shall have everlasting life. So how do we deal with these problems then? Well, we must read it in context and see what is going on here. And the problem that really emerges comes from verses 18 through 21, where we see how men love darkness rather than light. I'm not denying that man is sinful. Obviously, I assert that with great vehemence, but we must recognize that it is God who saves men out of darkness. But man is unable. Men love darkness rather than the light. Men are incapable of coming to God unless God changes them. That's why we need the light. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need new birth because of our vileness, because of our wretchedness, because of our sinfulness. We need new birth. We need the gift of faith, 
and we need to be reminded of God's eternal love. And all of this puts the emphasis on and magnifies the infinite love of God for the world. God does so love the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what Jesus really is teaching here in John 3, 16 through 21. And what he's doing is he's teaching a teacher of Israel but the salvation that is found in the Son of God. So it is a most glorious passage, one full of much rich gospel truth, and we'll look at it under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see God's love for the world, verses 16 and 17. Then secondly, we'll see man's hatred of God's love in verses 18 through 21. So God's love for the world, verses 16 and 17. Then secondly, man's hatred of God's love, verses 18 through 21. So let's first look at God's love for the world in verses 16 and 17. And notice in verse 16, we see the eternal foundation of the son's mission, namely love. Now we must back up a little bit here because as I said, context is important. We have language in verse 16, for and so, for God so loved, that is he's going to love the world in this specific way, but the four is important. We have to ask, what is the context? What came prior to this? The overarching context is Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee. An overarching conversation with this one who was a leader of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. One who snuck out at night to go see Jesus. He didn't want to be seen by his fellow Pharisees because he wanted to learn more from the Son of Man. He wanted to learn more from the Son of God. So he comes and he gives this statement. We know that you are from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice that's a passive. You must be born again. That is, we talk about here what is called new birth. Perhaps we also talk about it as regeneration or effectual calling. The only way that someone can have faith is if they have been born again. And being born again precedes faith. Unless one has been born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. It puts the emphasis on the power of the spirit, puts the emphasis on the work of that third person or the mission of the third person of the Trinity. The only way one can see and believe is if the spirit works. And as he says, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So even we Calvinists, even though we believe God predestined and those whom he predestined, he also calls. We also believe in the importance of evangelism because that's the way in which God calls sinners. The way in which God calls his elect is through the preaching of his word, which is where 316 is important for us. But in any case, how one sees and believes is by new birth. Then in verse 9, Nicodemus answers, how can these things be? So then Jesus then goes on to answer his question that really comes from verse 2, or his statement in verse 2, you cannot do this unless God is with him. He's going to highlight something about the son. The son isn't just a prophet from God, although he is a prophet. He is God. Notice the language. He's talking in mysterious High language, yet we must make sure we uh, ought to not make sure we don't say something we shouldn't about our God. But notice, are you the teacher and you do not know these things? He's kind of chastising him. You should have known Ezekiel 36, talking about the new birth. You should have understood that. 
and yet you don't understand what is going on here. You don't understand these things and you don't see who it is who is speaking to you. Again, that's why we need new birth to see it is, who it is who is speaking. Then he says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe me if I tell you heavenly things? He's telling them and he's not talking as though regeneration is an earthly birth. But what he's going to do here is compare regeneration to the eternal generation of the son. And when you consider the eternal generation of the son, the new birth does seem kind of earthly and related to it. That's a lot of commentators pointed out that very fact. If I told you these things, how will you understand things that are far more high and lofty? And so in verse 13, no one who has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So we talk about the one who is son, the one who is that second person of the Trinity has come down and he comes down by taking on human flesh. And so what he's talking about in verse 13, 14, and 15 refers to the incarnation and then also the crucifixion. Why did the son come down? He came down that he might be lifted up, that whoever looks to him may be saved. How does one then have eternal life? How does one then uh, find life in, in God or eternal life in him? It is by looking and living. And he refers back to Numbers 21, where we see Moses lift up that brazen serpent. And uh, when they were bitten temporally, bitten physically, and they would have died unless they looked to that brazen serpent and lived. Well, Jesus is making a comparison here with that serpent or a type that serpent was to the son of man. The son of man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What was a earthly salvation, the serpents, now he's referring to a spiritual heavenly salvation in the son. So it's all here talking about the heavenly work of God, the heavenly new birth, the heavenly salvation, the heavenly work of the one who came down and the one who died upon that cross. And so with this in mind, he then turns to the basis for believing and the basis for eternal life, namely God's love. This is where John 3:16 comes in for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, this verse really is too high and lofty for us, isn't it? And we consider the language of one who is only begotten. And yes, we're going to do some theology here for us, because brethren, we ought to do theology, right? We ought to ponder, we ought to think. As we come to God's word, there are things that are hard for us, right? The Old Testament speaks about how there is one God, monotheism, right? The New Testament speaks about how there is one God, right? But then we have the Father referred to as God, right? Then also the Son is referred to as God. And then the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. So how are we supposed to deal with such things like that? Well, that's where theology helps us. What language we ought to use to make sure we don't, A, say there are three gods, and B, say there is only one person. So that's where history helps us too, right? I mean, men of old hash these things out to make sure we don't say what we shouldn't say. And in reality, all of the study of God and study of theology really just is too high for us. Listen to Stephen Charnock. James Dolezal kept referencing this, uh, this quote, and it's great. He says, though we cannot comprehend him as he is, we are finite, he is infinite. We are in time, he is 
atemporal. He is eternal. We can't comprehend that. That's why the Bible speaks to us in baby talk, right? As far as the East is from the West, that's for us. But anyway, Katarnock says, though we cannot comprehend him as he is, we must be careful not to fancy him to be what he is not. And so when we consider the language of the Father sending the Son, we must be careful that we do not say that the Son is inferior as pertains to his Godhead to the, son, to the Father, right? There is the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Spirit is almighty, yet there is one almighty. That's the Athanasian Creed. And so what the emphasis here is, is really very Trinitarian. And when we consider the eternal relations of origin, and what I mean by that is the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. There is no distinction of essence, that is, there's not three gods, but the way we distinguish them, not in nature and being, but in several peculiar personal properties and relative properties and personal relations. So unbegotten, begotten, and proceeding. That's who God is. Again, we don't get that because we're not very smart. We don't really understand that. We're not supposed to comprehend that. But again, we just make, we ought to make sure we don't say something we shouldn't. And all of this is packed into John 3, 16. The father so loved. I think the emphasis of God, uh, the, the focus of God here in verse 16 is the father. Now it's again, not saying the son isn't God, but we see the God so loved the world. Now the son also loves the world, right? Galatians 2, 20, who loved us and gave himself for us. The son lays his life down for the sheep. John 10, the son saves his people from their sins. But we're seeing that reflection in time and space of the one who is father, son, and spirit. And we must remember and consider too that God is love, right? God doesn't grow or or decrease in love. God is love. And the way in which we see the one who is love, love us, is through the Son. What is love? It's really the will to do good. And God is perfect goodness. God is perfect love. God is perfect beatitude in and of himself. First John 4, 8 says this. But how does he manifest towards us, this toward the world in created effect in time and space? Well, in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that word only begotten is one, there's a lot of ink spilled on what that means, but I do think it refers to eternal generation. In Luke 7, Luke 8, and Luke 9, it refers to referring to the widow of Nain, referring to Jairus' daughter, and referring to the man who has a demon-possessed son, all refers to the monogenes, though only begotten. So it's referring to something, some sort of generation. Now, that's important in theology to say the son is eternally generated. He has no beginning. He has no end. But he, or he is eternally generated of the father. Again, a lot of high Christology here, isn't it? Again, it's, and the reason we need to do this is because we become illiterate in the church on these things. We've become illiterate in the church on these blessed truths. We like to say things that we should not be saying about our God. And even too, when it comes to then the incarnation, Father, Son, and Spirit, co equal and co eternal, yet the Son takes on human flesh, right? 
what we refer to here is the mission of the sun. And the missions reveal those eternal processions. And the mission of the sun is to come down and to take on human flesh. That coming down also is for us once again, right? So when the sun comes down, he does not stop being God. When the sun takes on human flesh, he is fully God and fully man. Again, men of old. He is of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. But at the same time, but at the same time, of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in every way, yet without sin. How is it that we who are sinful in Adam can be perfected? How is it that we who are sinful in Adam can be saved? Only if the one who is perfect takes on human flesh. And there's no addition into God in that taking on of human flesh. Again, these things are things we do not comprehend. But we must do as Charnock says, not to fancy him to be what he is not. He is the one who is eternally generated, who is then given into the world. The Father, Son, and Spirit is perfect life. God does not need us. God in his good pleasure was pleased to create the world, and God also in his good pleasure was pleased to save us. Now, why do we all do all this sort of theology? Mike, why are you talking like this, 10, whatever, 11 on a Sunday morning? Hey, as I said, we need to know this better. We just need to know it better. We need to stop trying to figure out ways to understand it better. We're not going to understand it better. Just use the old language. That's just the most helpful thing. A lot of people, some people, even conservatives, what they like to do is take eternally begotten, and they like to dismantle that and say, not dismantle, they don't, but they like to take it away and say, look, just as uh, the, the, fa- the son submits to the father, so too does ought to a wife submit to her husband. You see, we should never use any sort of analogy talking about the Trinity ever, because it usually just leads to some sort of heresy. We must confess father is God, the son is God, the spirit is God, yet there is one God. And not only do we need to know this, but it's also important when we consider what love the father has for us. When we consider both our finiteness and our sinfulness, it ought to magnify the love of God all the more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And notice the object of God's love is the world. Now, again, this is that section where people like to hone in on that. What does it mean here? What is the reference here? Is it every single person without exception? Is it talking about some sort of distinction? I take the latter, referring to distinction. Now, remember, who is he talking to? He's talking to a Jew. And to a Jew, the world referred to Gentiles. For a Jew, a Gentile being saved was an unthinkable thing. So he's making here an ethnic distinction. And and what he's highlighting here is, in fact, in the new covenant, there is no more any ethnic distinction. There is salvation, whether one is Jew or Greek. No more is there any ethnic distinction among the people of God, but it is spiritual. The spirit blows where he wishes. The spirit blows, and we do not know everyone, uh, so is everyone born of the spirit. And that includes not just Jews, but also Gentiles. 
I think that's the reference here to the world. When he says, for God so loved the world, that is not just Jews, but also Gentiles. He's saying that God does save people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Or Galatians 3, in him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That is, females can be saved. That is, Jews or Gentiles can be saved. And slaves can be saved. What we're supposed to do here is try to think of someone unthinkable, and God can, is actually mighty and strong and pleased to save them. That is, salvation is held out. I think we all have people in our minds or groups in our minds, we'd never like to admit it, but we do, that we might think are unsavable, right? It would be unthinkable if those people were saved by God. So the point really is here, we ought not to jump straight to predestination because we miss the evangelical character of what's happening here. For God so loved the world that he gave. Whoever believes, whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There is an assurance. There is a promise that if you believe upon the son, the son of man, look to him and live. You shall have everlasting life. And if you've believed on the Son, you have everlasting life. Now, again, I believe with John 6, 37 and 6, 44, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Or he says, the Father who sent me draws him. Yeah, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Who sent me draws him. Again, it's the work of God to draw. It's the work of God to save. But in time and space, we call people to believe. And everyone who believes in the Lord, Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, shall be saved. Well, perhaps let's bring it out in some modern terms. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not condoning the lifestyle, okay? I'm not doing that. It's wrong. It's not right. We need to call it out. But I'm just putting it out there. What if a pansexual believes? Do they have everlasting life? What if a drag queen, a murderer, a terrorist, an abortionist, a drag, lesbian, abortionist, terrorist, believes? What if they look to Christ and find mercy and have their sins forgiven and God changes them? Will they not have everlasting life? That is the power and work of our God, isn't it? To take dead sinners, to take wretches like you and I, and give us everlasting life. And the emphasis, notice, in, uh, the emphasis really is to draw that very thing out. And that's the point of the book, John 20. Why does he write that you might believe in the Son of God? We must see the evangelical character here, here brethren, and recognize that whoever believes shall have everlasting life. And he continues to discuss this in verse 17. Again, take the reference of world here to refer to Gentiles or the unthinkable. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But again, he's then come to condemn the Gentiles, which the Jews were rooting for. But he came to save. He came to change. He came to do this. Now he will judge. We know that. John 5, 22, he will make deliberations that way. He will come again. And perhaps too, we could take it in another way. Some theologians highlight there are two advents of Christ. The first, he came to save. The second, he will judge, right? 
He's going to come again. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He really will. Those who are in him and those who will die in their trespasses and sins. But his coming, though, according to verse 17, is to emphasize that the unthinkable can find salvation, but that the world through him might be saved. And even there, there's a passive, might be saved. Not me, not my work, not what I do, but might be saved through him, through the son, through what he does. That's his mission. God did not have to save. But if God decreed the way in which God decreed following man's sin, this is the way in which salvation must be brought. One who stands in the stead, one who bears the punishment upon themsel- on himself in the place of sinners, which Christ does. This is what happens when the Son of Man is lifted up upon that tree. That's how he saves. And if you look to him, you shall have everlasting life. And brethren, all this really is to point out God's love for us. We don't get the infinite part, right? We don't get that. We don't get the eternal part. We don't grasp that. We don't get the immeasurable part. We don't really understand any of that. That's why it's hard for us to fathom his love. But how do we see his love? He sent forth his son, that he might become a propitiation for us and die for our sins. Brethren, see what love God is and has for us. When we consider the fact that he is eternal creator who deserves our worship, yet in sin we did not give it to him. When we consider him as gracious redeemer who brings salvation to those who've sinned because of his love manifested in the work of the son. When we consider all these things, see what love God has for us. This is the emphasis of John in his first letter. John, the gospel of John is, here's Jesus, believe upon him. First John is, be assured of your salvation in him. But in, in 1 John 5, he says, sorry, 1 John 3, 1, he says, it's towards the back of the Bible. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. It is his work. It is his power. It is his grace that we see in time and space, in the Son, in the mission of the Son, and in the mission of the Holy Spirit. Chrysostom says, he was called golden mouth for a reason, but listen to what he has to say. He, and also too, this was a, this is a homily. This is a sermon. So that's why I have no problem talking theology in sermons. We need more theology in sermons, but because I think we're all, people are smarter than we like to give ourselves credit for, you know, people are, you know, we just don't know. We need to just learn. But anyway, this is what he says. He says, he, the immortal who is without beginning, the infinite majesty, they or us, but dust and ashes full of 10,000 sins who ungrateful have at all times offended him, and these he loved. And whence did God so love the world? From no other source, but only from his goodness. Why is it that God loves you, dear brethren? It's because of his goodness. And we see that in the Son. So God really does love the world, doesn't he? We must recognize that and see that and praise him for it. So that's God's love for the world. Let's then look secondly at man's hatred of God's love. 
verses 18 through 21. This just magnifies how sinful and how wretched and vile sin truly is. Notice the condemnation of man, verse is 18 and 19. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. And the reason, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so what he's highlighting here, he's not, it's not, he's not, he's not above making distinctions. Our Lord is not above distinguishing between believer and unbeliever. But he, again, here he's emphasizing the responsibility of unbelievers. That is, our sin is what ought to condemn us. Our sin is what ought to bring us down. It was our fault, right? Well, God is good to save and give us everlasting life. But notice, he who believes in him is not condemned. What he's highlighting here is the fact that there's a difference between the declaration, guilty, not guilty, versus the actually being guilty or not guilty. We're still waiting for that judgment day, right? So those that are in Christ, even though we haven't heard the terms not guilty, the reality is we're not guilty. We're not condemned. Therefore, in Christ, there is no more condemnation. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. I know we still got remaining corruption. I know sometimes we feel low in our sins, brethren, but this is an important thing to remember. In Christ, there is now no more condemnation in him. And on that day, we shall hear you are not guilty because of Christ. It is true now. It shall be true then. It shall be more clear then, but it is absolutely true now. We ought to remember that very thing. But for unbelievers, if you're not in Christ, if you're still in Adam, you are condemned already, and rightly so. That is, you've sinned in Adam, and even though we haven't heard the terms guilty, you are guilty because of your sinfulness against this thrice holy God. And when we consider the fact that the gospel is held out, when we consider the fact of Jesus speaking to the Jews, it magnifies man's wickedness all the more. Here is the light. Here is the the one who is son. Here is the one who is God. And the Jews reject him? It magnifies man's sin all the more. And if you've attended this church for any amount of time, or you've attended any church, and you heard the gospel proclaimed to you, and you continue to reject it, condemnation. Now, again, there is mercy in Christ. You look to him, you shall find mercy. But every time you reject that gospel call, it will be more and more of an evidence and a confirmation of your sin against God on that day. But you can flee it now. Look to the sun and live. The only way to flee is through faith in the only begotten son of God. It says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's one way of salvation. It's not in me. It's in Christ. It's not in you. It's in Christ. Believe upon him and him alone and you shall be saved. There are things that I've said today that you probably don't comprehend. There are things I've said today that I don't comprehend. Brethren, we we receive those things by faith. And if you're an unbeliever, you are sinful, but the way of salvation is in Jesus. Believe on him. Believe that these things are true, and you shall find mercy. Chrysostom once again says, when a man is ill-disposed towards those things, which it is possible to apprehend by the uh, intellect, and will not readily receive them, he may justly be charged with want of understanding. 
But when he receives not things which cannot be apprehended by reason, but only by faith, the charges against him is no longer want of understanding, but unbelief. You may understand or maybe get the fact that the son is not, or the father is God and the son, uh, the son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, yet there is one God, but do you believe it to be true? You may hear the message and say, yes, I'm saying that there was, a there was a Jesus who came down, he lived, he died, rose again. You might say, okay, I get what you're saying, but I don't believe it. You must believe to be true. You must look and live and you shall find great and blessed mercy in him. That is the only way. And notice he goes on to amplify this condemnation, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light, again, saying what I've been saying, or I'm saying what the Bible said, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Those who came, though uh, the sun has come, yet they rejected him. And there will be judgment. He does say in John 9, 39, for judgment, I came into the world. And who is he judging there? The Jews who reject him. The Jews who saw the man who was blind and now can see. They're rejecting him. You see, again, the emphasis and focus really is spiritual, isn't it? It's no longer about ethnic descent. You cannot say, because my parents were believers, I'm saved. You must believe and look to him. And the sad reality is the heinousness of sin is magnified in the rejection of the son. Men in sin love their sin. They love the things of evil. Notice verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. In John 1, 12 and 13, John the Baptist, or speaking of John the Baptist, then turning to speak of Jesus. But as many as received him, that is the light, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but on uh, God who shows mercy. And man needs great mercy and salvation because of sin. Everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. He be brought to shame for those things. Nobody likes to be shamed. Nobody wants that. But one of the blessed things about the gift of repentance is a recognition of sin, sorrow over sin, change of mind of that sin, owning one's sin and looking to Christ in faith. So certainly repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And certainly coming to the sun or the work of the spirit exposes those very things and coming to the sun exposes those things as well. He does not come to that light who shines on those things. The thing is he's going to shine on it anyway in judgment. So why not believe now and find mercy in him? All your sins will be exposed on that final day. In fact, the only other time in the Bible where practicing evil, the way it's used here, is used is in John 5.29. And in John 5.29, he's speaking about judgment. He's talking about how the son shall call forth all those out of the grave and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There's everlasting ramifications for your sins that you commit now, but you can find mercy in the son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 21, 
referring to those who've been saved and changed in him. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. God who changes, God who works. You see, dear brother, we're not above the reality that we must live in a manner consistent with the gospel and our sanctification. Our works don't say, but they're a manifestation that we have been saved. And that emphasis that is seen here for us. And notice they're God-wrought deeds. They have been done in God. And how does one know that they're a child of God? First John 2, if you keep my commandments. Not looking for perfection, not looking, again, not as a way of salvation, but perhaps you can say, the Bible says that children of God will seek to honor him, will manifest fruits of the spirit, will seek to keep his commandments. I can say, by God's grace, albeit imperfectly, that I see evidences of fruits of the spirit, that I seek to honor him, and there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. There, ergo, I am a child of God. This is our sanctification. This is being sanctified by your truth. Thy word is truth, as our Lord Jesus prays. Certainly, he says something similar about bearing fruit in John 15. He talks about keeping commandments in John 14 again that we might be, it might be done in God, according to God's power, strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man, Ephesians chapter 3. Good works are an evidence of salvation, but they are preceded by faith and are continued in faith, but also faith is preceded by new birth, and then new birth is preceded by election. Those to whom God has predestined, he calls. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans chapter 8. But we see how man hates God's love. And the only way to see God's love is by new birth. So I want you to see the importance of new birth. The importance of the work of the spirit. The importance of faith in God. Man's hatred evidences the need for a new birth. The first birth was wrought in sin. The new birth is wrought in cleansing by the Spirit. And as the Spirit works in hearts and lives of believers, he gives us the gift of faith that we might accept, rest, and receive Christ alone for salvation. Faith is receiving the gifts that God has given. Faith is accepting and believing the truth. And thankfully, even the unthinkable, can find mercy in Christ. As we read our Bible, who do we typically think are the unthinkable when it comes to salvation? Pharisees, right? We turn to John 19, 39. After Jesus has been killed, after Jesus has died upon that tree, after he's been lifted up and he's being buried, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. And so he took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus. The one who came to Jesus by night in John 3, the one to whom Jesus was actually speaking, John 3, 16, 2, has believed and has found everlasting life in the Son of God. Chrysostom once again says, Wherefore, if we wish to attain glory, let us flee from human glory. 
and desire that only which cometh from God, so shall we obtain both the one and the other, which we may, uh, which may we all enjoy through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, God really does so love the world that he really did give his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our great father, thank you that we pray to you through the son by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we confess and rightly believe one who is Trinity, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Thank you that none is a four and none is after, none is lesser and none is greater. And we're thankful, O God, that the Father is of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is begotten of the Father, neither, uh, neither, created, uh, uh, neither created nor made. And thank you that the Spirit is of the Father and the Son, proceedeth uh, from the Father and the Son. And he truly is not made, not created, not begotten, but proceeding. Thank you, O God, for this language. Thank you, O God, for men of old who hash these things out to make sure we did not conflate the persons, but to also make sure we did not divide the essence. Thank you, O God, that even other language used to describe how it is that the second person comes down and the spirit is poured out. How is it that the one who is eternal and infinite, the one who works in, in time and space, which is finite, Thank you, O God, that you're the one who is, you're the one who creates, and you're the one who upholds, and you're the one who saves. And so we pray, O God, that we would see your blessed love as you reveal yourself to us in the Son. Thank you, O God, that he became flesh and tabernacled among us. We are so undeserving of the gift of this, so undeserving to have communion with you, to have communion with our Lord by your spirit now, to have him, had, uh, to have him be here with us. Uh, during his earthly ministry, and also to see him as he is. We know, oh God, we shall never comprehend you in your essence, but we long to see Christ as he is and long to praise him world without end. Thank you, oh God, for this. Thank you for this blessedness that awaits us. Thank you that eternal life really is unbroken communion with you. And we long for that fullness to come in. We long for the new heavens and new earth. Thank you that as we see change and decay, you are the God who changes not. And we pray that you would abide with us each and every day. Help us to know your love. Help us to see the new birth and its importance. Help us to see faith and the gift that it is. <laughs> and we pray, oh God, that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. Be with us now as we go into the world, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.